Hi, I'm Steve. I'm Aaron. And I'm Daniel. And we're the Verbal Reasoning Podcast. Three friends with professional scientific backgrounds. Discussing all things under the sun in the most digestible way. Enjoy. Welcome to today's podcast where we have a very special guest, Joel Abraham. He's currently doing a PhD at the Mollard Space Science Laboratory in collaboration with ESA, NASA European Space Agency, on the Solar Orbiter. In today's podcast, we will discuss the Solar Orbiter and the NASA Parker Solar Probe missions and the impact on our lives. Maybe I'll, I'll pass it on to Joel. How are you doing, Joel? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? You're good? Yeah, very good. Uh, well, uh, like Dan, we were talking earlier, you know, absolutely boiling, but thank God it hot, rains. Hot, 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 hot. I have to shave my afro off. <laughs> it's that hot. Yeah. So um, maybe, Joel, you can give us like a background on what you do and maybe what, what, what are these, uh, these projects? So, so these these uh, well, so there are, as you mentioned, there are two missions: there's the Solar Orbiter and the Parker Solar Probe. Uh, so the Parker Solar Probe is a NASA-led mission to kind of explore the inner regions of our sun and get closer to the sun and really see uh, where this, you know, what's really happening to the sun, get a close-up image. So to this day, we, you know, we kind of look outside into the sky and what we see is this kind of uh, a good smooth circle that we look mm. at the sun but when you get up close to the sun it's much more dynamic there's explosions that are happening there are small explosions and there are huge explosions and there's m- m- materials that are 24 7 constantly flowing out of the sun so parker solar probe gets really close to the sun and takes higher resolution measurement whereas the solar orbiter which is an ESA-led mission uh, with strong participation from uh, NASA and it's going to perform uh, unprecedented close-up observations of the sun, just like Parker Solar Probe, but Parker Solar Probe will get within like 10 solar radius, so really, really close up. Um, but Solar Orbiter will be the first mission to fly out of the ecliptic plane and take the pictures of our North and South Pole, which we have never seen before. And many solar physicists believe that many of the secrets of how our star works relies on these poles and they're just hidden there. Oh wow! So, so all this time we've had no clue, and and now finally we get to peek behind the you know the angle that we can we couldn't see before. Yeah. Yeah. So we we get to see like, oh okay, what is this north and south pole? Because when we do Jupiter, you will see there are these dynamic structures, and Earth, you know the sun's magnetic field is not just like a dipole, like a simple structure. There's many loops being formed, and you're like, well, where is all of this coming from? So is it like is it is it like on a magnet when you you know back in the days back in school where you put a magnet underneath a sheet of paper and you pour like do you remember the iron, uh, iron filings? Is yeah. it, when you when you say like loops, is that the kind of like a pattern that the sun I guess has when it comes to magnetic fields? So it's it's similar to that. So when I say loops, yes, they are like uh, so imagine, imagine there's like a magnetic field line that comes out, but it, on the surface, but then it forms a loop. So similar to like an iron bar magnet, mm-hmm. but instead of the classic picture where you have, you know, a simple north and south and that's all, yeah. you have like closed structures and open loops that are, so there are field lines that just goes deep into space. Oh, wow. And there are other field lines that go, but then rotates back on itself and comes back. Um, you can have reconnection events. So this is when, when, when two field lines meet, they form kind of this like circular loop and they just move out into space, kind of like the balls of, and medical. Oh, that's, did, did anyone um, 
anyone remember like when a teach the teacher used to tell you if the iron iron filings were in your eye you go blind? And this is off topic, <laughs> but <laughs> bro, I can't remember anything about I can't remember anything about uni, so or even school, that's, whatever. That's 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 that was the GCSE stuff, Aaron. Exactly, that's how <laughs> Aaron, was snort, I Aaron was snorting those iron filings. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that's the wrong. The magnetic pose was a really interesting, really interesting stuff to learn about, though. Yeah, but I just want to wind the back of it. For us. Yeah, we love physics. We love that kind of stuff. But we just want to talk about the sun. You started off with the sun, and not many of our listeners, or some listeners, might not know about the sun and its anatomy. So I wanted to talk through that with you because um we saw the materials that you sent us, and mm-hmm. I found it really interesting to learn about like all the different zones of the sun. Would you just like mm-hmm. to talk us through that. If- so yeah, so let's so if we're going to look at the sun, let's start from the center, right? So at the center yeah. we have the core, where the sun generates its energy via thermonuclear reactions. We kind of know, you know, you have the hydrogen atoms colliding, making helium and lots of energy, and then this will go out into the radiative zone, where the energy created in the core diffuses slowly through these plasma, and like plasma is like kind of the fourth state of matter. And as it flows out, it then goes to this convective zone where rapid heating of this plasma creates these kind of currents of heated and cooled gas. Uh, mm-hmm. And then above this is the visible layer of the sun. So when you look out at the sun, uh, what we see is the visible surface, which is the uh, photosphere. Uh, now, the really interesting part, and I think this is kind of the old age question that's still unanswered in solar physics is, the sun's surface temperature is about 5,500 degrees Celsius. Now, as you move out of the surface, there is this transition region, and you go into this region called the corona, where the temperature goes from 5,500 to 1 million degrees Celsius, which is a giant peak in temperature. Oh, wow. Is this right, as, of, as you go out? So you go... Going yeah, out as you go out from okay. the surface of the sun. So the, the surface of the sun isn't the hottest part of the sun, if that makes sense. Uh, so the center is really hot. The center is at 15 Yeah, the center is the, hot, yeah, the hottest part. Yeah. But as you flow out, you would, you would think like, you know, as you yeah. go away from a heat source, the temperature goes down. Yeah. yeah. So we notice it goes down up to 5,000 and then there's this giant peak, which goes a million degrees. Yeah. And that's still unanswered. So we're hoping these two missions will help us to understand why it happens. Wow, that's uh, And then it then falls down like a natural curve. Heat will radiate outwards. And then we had the, so you guys probably heard of the eclipse that happened, right? Maybe you can give us a background of what happened. Which eclipse? So I think there was an eclipse recently, so the solar eclipse, where the moon covered the sun's surface. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so when, when you look at that picture, what happens is uh, on a, like a really good solar eclipse, you can see kind of this swift lines coming out of the sun. Uh, like swishing about, and that's what we call the corona, and that extends millions of kilometers away from the surface. So we only we have multiple types of coronas now. <laughs> we have you know the drink, <laughs> the disease, and now the sun <laughs> getting attacked I, I all, all angles. I didn't want to say it, but here we are. And what I'm researching about is, so you know, uh, before I used to think, you know, space is empty, vacuum, there's nothing. You go there, there's nothing. But it's actually wrong because from the sun, because it's emitting materials 24-7, we have this wind flowing out called the solar wind. And the average speed of this wind is about 450 kilometers per second. So that's on like a normal day. Oh, and wow. if you have yeah. huge explosions <laughs> on the sun, you can have up to 2,000 kilometers per second. 
and a billion tons of material every second coming towards the earth well so at at the lowest speed it's like faster than the speed of sound i'm guessing yeah 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 so on earth it's much much faster than the speed of sound so so like i have a question actually maybe going back to the actual like technology that's orbiting the sun um Mm -hmm. i wonder like as you said as you go further away from the sun there's that peak in temperature and yeah. I'm assuming it's still very hot at uh, a larger distance. Can the um, satellites withstand that kind of heat, or do they do they have to come across that heat? Um, so that that is a good question. So you know, as we explore this kind, of, so the sun is uh, one of the most hostile regions in our solar system. And as you currently mentioned, you know, it's, it's a giant ball of heat emitting thousands and thousands of temperature. So in solar orbiters' case. You know, when solar orbiter faces the sun, it will be facing in excess of 500 degrees Celsius. Most of the instruments will melt, but we have this uh, something called a heat shield, so this plate on top of the spacecraft, mm. which protects all the instruments. And all the instruments are designed such that they're on the shadow uh, of this heat shield. Okay. So, if you imagine the spacecraft goes towards the sun, and I think when it reaches about 88 million miles the spacecraft will ensure that the heat shield is always facing the sun. And it will almost do this kind of like crab walk where it's walking around the sun, like you're flying around the sun. Yeah. The heat shield is <laughs> always there and the instruments are tucked right behind it. Ah. Um, but now if you're stuck behind the heat shield away from the sun's heat, you're now going the other way, right? The, the cold space, which is at like minus 180 degrees, which is going to cool everything down if, if your instrument isn't operating. So we have radiators behind it to ensure the temperatures of the instruments don't get cold enough so they can't operate. So it's a fine balance between not being too hot and not being cold, just in the right operating temperature. Mm, that's really interesting. I guess I have to, I guess if we ever go into the future and like space crafts, we're going to have to think of that uh, yeah. kind of things. Yeah. So um, are, the, are the heat shields, are they absorbing the heat or are they reflecting the heat or both? From what I understand, uh, I think they have a titanium there, which reflects most of the heat away. Because um, okay. we can't contain the heat, right? Because you have instruments yeah. right behind it. So you just have That's to radiate true. it away. So I thought maybe they would use that energy to power the radiators. Or is that, is that too much going on at once? Yeah, so the sun's, uh, so the energy from the sun is so powerful. It's 13 times stronger what we feel on here on Earth. So now, you know, on this hot day, we feel really... Yeah. <laughs> Imagine 13 times more. Um, oh, yeah, so when they strike the sun's surface, you will have uh, particles that are being like kicked off. So you have photoelectrons being generated. If you try and enhance, use this energy, uh, I guess one of the main issues would be you'll have this medium where now the sun has this route of taking energy into the spacecraft. So if you had a giant explosion, which gets even hotter, then you have this small issue about like, oh, okay, now there's too much energy. What do we do? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Um, well, that's all uh, quite interesting. Can I just ask, like, what is the applications of having this knowledge going forward? I mean, how do you apply it to, let's say, what you find out there? How would you apply it to people here on Earth? And you know, what's the long-term implications of doing this sort of research? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So. As you know, the modern technology is heavily reliant, well, the modern society is heavily reliant on technology. So, you know, we rely on Internet of Things. 
uh, and we, we are becoming more reliant on you know satellites and uh, GPS systems working. Um, so on Earth we have this weather, right? So we have a cold day, a warm day, a sunny day, a rainy day. In the same way, in space there's also a weather system, and we call it the space weather. So as I said, you know the sun has this you know continuous outflow of these particles, and they can interact with our Earth's magnetic field and create geomagnetic storms. So really, really strong storms, which can influence our modern society. So they can influence, because they're high energy particle radiation, they can uh, affect satellite, uh, sorry, astronom uh, astronauts' health. Uh, they can knock out uh, our communication system, power grids, the whole planet can go into darkness. Um, and if you think about it, a modern city today relies on a good transportation system. And a really yeah. complex transportation system relies on, you know, all these satellites and being connected to the internet. And if you imagine all of that goes out into blackout and all the transformers blew up, yeah. you will have issues such as like, okay, so what do we do now? No cars are moving. And if you think about it, in the future, we're moving to, towards this electric future, right? So the government is promoting that more people have electric cars. Imagine if you had a huge explosion yeah. in the sun, all the electronics on an electric car kind of fries. What do we do? We just have a gridlock city of yeah. cars that can move. Absolutely. Everyone's stuck. And maybe I can give a background. So like in March 1989, something similar to that occurred on Earth. So a geomagnetic storm hit the Earth. And well, luckily back then we weren't so reliant on electronic uh, technology. But even then there were com like mass communication blackouts. And if it does happen again, uh, I, th I think you hit on it. <laughs> we're moving into a more uh, digitally reliant world. And maybe like in the future, if that happens again, uh, data can be wiped out. So things that we used to store on paper uh, that are now stored on, you know, uh, digitally on, I don't know, electric circuits or whatever, can now be kind of, uh, you know, removed, wiped out, and then we're, we're stuck. Yeah, yeah, and then we're stuck with nothing. You know, we were better off uh, inscribing things on stone at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and also taking this further, you also have, um, you know, some of the effects, not only electric, you know, pipelines. You know, we use long route pipelines to pump oil and everything. Oh, yeah. Um, so these storms, you know, create fluctuating magnetic field lines in our atmosphere. Now, if you think about it, we have fluctuating magnetic field lines, induces current into our ground. Now, you know, current likes to find the path with the least resistance. Now, you have these pipelines which are made out of steel. So the current will mm. go to the steel pipelines, which will corrode them. So, you mm. know, you have these pipelines that are now corroded and electrified. Well, what do we do now? We don't have water flowing from across the country or up to the North Poles. I think uh, we're done for is the short one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're That's done bad, for. Yeah. But I guess so, luckily we have a, our own protector, right? Which is the Earth's magnetic field. Uh, yes. Um, so the Earth's magnetic field protects us from uh, the most, most of the solar radiation. So, you know, it's happening 24-7. We have this, we're bathed in the solar wind. But when we have like, and you know we can see this on Earth, like aurora, aurora borealis, with the northern and southern lights. But when we have a mag big geomagnetic storms, you know, in the news we'll hear these these lights can be seen in at lower latitudes, like in the UK and France. So, so it's a real thing that you know these storms can influence our life here on planet Earth. And if we if if we don't get appreciation to how dangerous they can be, uh, we will really run into a risk where uh, as Steve mentioned, one of uh, you know one of those big events is like a Carrington. If that happened, 
on today's scale, uh, we, we are looking at about $2.6 trillion worth of damage for the modern society as it is. And if you, if you think about it, as we advance, this damage cost is going to go up and up and up. And you know, when you say $2.6 trillion worth of damage, you know, that's going to take months or even years to recoup from. or even you know, get We probably won't be able to recoup, to be honest with you. That sounds insane. That's an insane yeah. amount of money. You see this giant magnetic storm, could it be predicted? Yes, so that can be predicted now. Uh, so we have satellites that are uh, sitting closer to the sun, like mm-hmm. SO and STO that make measurement. And we kind of use a predictive modeling to know when it happens. So when we see an explosion, something that happens on the sun, uh, we kind of now can have a, a day or two's warning. Um, okay. If you had a really, really big eruptive event, you know, it, the, the more we can predict this happening, and the better we can prepare, the less damage it will happen to the Earth. So missions like Solar Orbiter and Arca Solar Probe helps us to understand exactly what's happening with the sun and how it works. And if we know how the sun exactly works, then we can kind of say, like, okay, there's going to be this giant storm coming our way because X and Y are forming on the other side of the sun. We yeah. can have the few weeks ahead and prepare ourselves. Yeah, because I'm thinking about not just the the cost of money but the, the cost of lives because there's going to be yeah. airplanes there's going to be boats trains hospitals mm-hmm. all these things are going to happen and then everything's just going to fall out of the sky crash and whatnot so uh, there's probably not a model on how people will die just from the sudden impact of a i mean of like a storm. I, I can say for planes we already have to like kind of think of protection for electronic circuits on board yeah and uh we we even we even predict that you know every now and then because of rate some radiation still enters uh, aircrafts for example on a computer something called a bit which is like data in the computer will just flip for no reason so it will give you like wrong data and uh, this actually has to be accounted for in the design of an aircraft so you can imagine if it was like a catastrophic event that you know everything is just flipped and nothing makes sense in the, uh, the avionics bay um yeah it could cause life. Yeah, I'm, ne- I'm never going on a plane again, so thank you. Um, I'm, I'm the worst one to sit next to you on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of sounds like um, a Y2K scenario almost. And, um, you know, I don't want to cause mass hysteria or whatever, but, you know, what what is the preventative action you can take? So, you know, you mentioned how, like, it can be a day or two in advance where you might know that some sort of event is hurtling yeah. its way towards us. Like, can you give me a few examples of what sort of preventative measures we could take if we did know that something like this was going to happen? Yeah. So, so as Steve mentioned, you know, airline in, so I'll take airline industry, for example. So, you know, they are, more of them are getting involved and they're now recognizing the threat of space weather. And some countries have actually declared this kind of phenomenon of space weather as national emergency. And, you know, airlines are working with like Met Office and, you know, space forecast agencies. And what they would say is that if there's a particular storm or event, they will either cancel those flights or might not fly over regions where there are intense concentration of this high radiation. So like North and South Pole, so you might cancel your polar route. If you're on, on Earth, so what we can do is we can predict how this would happen so we can switch off our uh, generators for a little bit of time. So we're not actually supplying power. We can have this on and off period where you know, nothing is being damaged because we have isolated it all to the ground and then we restart it once the storm has went, in, went past us. 
How would, let's say, mobile phones be affected by that? I mean, um, let's say I had my mobile phone on. Would I have to turn my mobile phone off or would it not be affected? Or if it is affected, how, like, would it blow the circuits inside the phone, for example? That I mean, I'm seeing very theoretical stuff here. I'm just, I'm just wondering. Would it kill Aaron if he had the phone to his head at the same moment in time? <laughs> Please say yes. <laughs> Shut up, man. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying, those things can happen. You'd miss me when I'm gone, I but think... go I think it's difficult to like to determine exactly what will happen to a phone because we don't know the architecture of it. But for sure, I think it will be affected, uh, at least electronic circuits. Yeah. And also, if you think about it, you know, this is high energetic particles, right? So if our atmosphere has this more particles, you know, signals and frequencies do not make past this barrier. They can get reflected back to the ground. So even if you had a phone, I don't think you'll have any data, any signal, nothing to do. It's just a phone with a calculator. Um, but if it's horribly bad storm, which, which I, I don't know whether you have a big enough storm where the phone starts to explode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if this happens on a very large scale. Um, We'd be screwed at that point, I think, Aaron. That's the least of your worries. Seven billion phones. Okay, so, so basically, if, if it's that bad, then I shouldn't even bother worrying because we're finished. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so probably you should worry about, you know, uh, getting cancer because... By that time, oh, wow. we have radiation which will damage <laughs> DNA within cells, lead to cancer, and you know you might even have radiation burns. But Joel, will my phone be okay? I don't care about the cancer. Everyone's <laughs> 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 thinking about his Instagram page, man. You need to exactly. keep it up Come on, man. People gotta see me live my life. Come on, please. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on how big the store is. <laughs> Yeah, that's quite interesting. But I guess like we're not just under threat by the sun. I mean, you can imagine if we have some other very large, you know, uh, radiating uh, emitters from, I don't know, other galaxies or uh, let's say Andromeda nearby, that's, I don't, let's say hypothetically, it's something so large that uh, we get hit by it. We can't really predict stuff like that, can we? We're kind of screwed. So in the sun, we, you know how Earth, we have this magnetic field and we have this bubble, which we, we are protected. Yeah. In the same way, the sun also creates this bubble called the heliosphere. And that's where all these nine planets are inside. We're kind of protected by the sun's heliosphere. And outside the heliosphere, we have this interplanetary solar wind, which is this, uh, so not interplanet, interstellar solar wind, uh, which has this huge radiation and this big wind flowing around. And we, we, we can see this bubble just like how we see it on Earth. Uh, and when these enter into our system, uh, are you guys familiar with it? A galactic cosmic rays. Um, so these are like yes. high energy. I mean, that sounds crazy cool. That sounds crazy cool, but I'm not familiar with it. So these are like really, really energetic radiation out in space, which is protected by our sun's bubble. But when they penetrate into our atmosphere, you know, they can be really strong. And I mean, I think they're like, uh, some of them can be like a few times bigger than what we ever observed here on Earth. Luckily, we're protected. But if it ever makes a surface, yeah, the damage will be quite catastrophic. So at the same time, our, ta- our sun is attacking us and defending us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can't live without it, basically. Kind of like, like our parents, like our parents, isn't it? Just insulting mm. us. Also putting a roof over our heads in our childlike lives. <laughs> <laughs> we have a very toxic relationship with the sun is what I've kind of gathered from what Joel said there. Yeah, and also and the sun's important. <laughs> If you think about it, yeah, okay, sure, the sun has these explosions that, yeah, if it's bad, it can affect our society. 
but it's also important in our day-to-day -day life. You know, sun has a crucial role in driving weather on our planet. Um, I think if uh, I read somewhere, uh, if the sun was to stop, you know, our, our atmosphere will solidify. And, you know, the weight of the atmosphere is over a trillion kg uh, in that kind of scale. You know, if that comes collapsing down on us, we would be oh on like, God. oh, the problem. <laughs> That's the biggest L that we would Joe, have ever taken. You're scaring me, Joe. You're scaring me. I'm getting very scared right now. All the, all the reptiles that live underneath the earth will be so happy to see us get crushed by the atmosphere. So. <laughs> but, you know, that's that very unlikely to happen. Thanks to, like, the sun. I don't like the way you said it's very unlikely. How unlikely is it? Uh, right now, we haven't predicted any time where the sun oh, Joe, you're scaring me, Joe. You're scaring me. Come on. Aaron, it's okay. <laughs> There's no need to Calm be scared. Aaron's one of the Mayans, isn't it? He's got a Mayan yeah. calendar. That's what that's the calendar he follows. <laughs> He's in year what, 2000 and... is the end of, end of mankind, is that what you're telling me, Joe? Yeah. <laughs> no. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking, of course, I know. I know. Eric, no, I'm, just, I'm just trying to probe, just in case we have, like, a conspiracy theorist listening. I don't want them to be scared. So, you know, you, with the tinfoil hat, listening to this podcast right now, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Joe said it's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Thank you. There are scientists around the world working around the clock, uh, you know, monitoring sun very closely. You know, we have preventative measures and mm. I don't think we will be in a big danger where we should be like, oh, humanity is going to be extinct. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be like, uh, OK, we should probably do X and Y so we can have. I've got a question about like, so people, the listeners are obviously listening to like, you know, space weather, solar weather. And they're thinking, is this something that's abstract? Or if I go out there, let's say I'm able to survive being in space, will I be able to feel this solar wind like the wind on Earth? Um, is it like a physical thing that? human beings can feel um, obviously it's hypothetical but or is it just a metaphysical thing it's, it's not abstract it's a real thing because we measure particles flowing out of it so you know we measure electrons and ions that are flowing 24 7 and we record their speeds but if a human being was to be there would we feel this wind is there like a difference in pressures between the uh, the lines i think i read i read somewhere that um like solar wind, there can be like difference in pressures, which then could imitate uh, wind, like a force. Uh. Yes, so that that is possible. So you know, in re so you can have uh, you know frequencies, you can have compressions and rarefactions within the wind. So you can have a slow wind going out, but then you can have a faster wind following it, which causes compression within you know this medium. Where I guess you can, in that sense, you can feel it. But but what you need to think about it is it's space plasma, right? So the, it's collisionless. So, you know, the amount of particles in there are very small. You know, the amount of collisions that happen uh, in, in a plasma so between a proton and an electron. Yeah. Uh, there's only one collision between the sun and the earth. There is no, ah, nothing else. Right, because yeah. it's, it's not a collisionless medium. I don't think there's enough particles to feel like a to push. To feel, ah, I got you. But you'll definitely feel the heat. That I'll tell you. Yeah, you'd There's die. a radiation and electromagnetic waves coming through. <laughs> You'll definitely feel it. Rest in peace um, to us, I guess. <laughs> I guess it's quite interesting how hostile, you know, outside the Earth is just this really hostile environment, which, uh, I mean, we have never observed life outside, you, you know, in space that exists. Like, you, you know, when you see cartoons and you see space whales and stuff, you know, that's, that's such a fantasy. But in reality, it's so hostile that things can't live. But then you get, like, a ball of, you know, water and and some, yeah. com you know, compressed air. And you can see life is just thriving. I guess it's also like digs into people being spiritual, etc. Uh, yeah. 
So I was thinking, Joel, like, what what got you into science? I mean, like, was it what what got you into like space science and physics? Was it this kind of uh, connection to know what what's deeper in this life? Or for me, it was the exploratory nature. So from a very young age, I was a curious person. You know, I want to find the reasons as to why something happened and try and investigate that further. And looking into space, you know, space is a wide expanse. You know, the scale of space is mind-boggling. So you know, we talk about uh, our Earth being this big, but then Sun's 330,000 times bigger. But then, if you put this into scale of our Milky Way galaxy, that's even bigger. And I'm like, well, there's this wide expanse of things we can explore that we are not mm. sure about, and how this happens. Um, so I think my nature to explore more stuff is what got me into science. That's and, cool. You know, space is cool, right? Yeah. Um, and you know that that kind of uh, thing about knowing more about our planets and how our planets can influence us and how does we live in this medium where we are rotating around the sun or we, we don't have top or a bottom. Um, so things of that nature, you know, that uh, kind of mm. curious nature is what, we got, what got me into it. Um, I, just, I just had the sudden thought, like, uh, let's say you were given the opportunity to be a spaceman and like travel through, through the galaxy. Yeah. Uh, is that something you would want? I mean, some people are... are you know, they're quite interested with space, but they're also very scared of it. You know, they would, they just want to watch it from afar. Are you one of those people who would rather watch it from afar and do the theoretical side of it? Or if given the option, would you, would you become a spaceman and kind of travel through the, through the galaxy? That is a interesting question. I think if we have the correct protective measures, I would definitely would like to go into space and see everything. Explore. Yeah. yeah, but if there is, you know, no protective measure, there's huge winds and radiation. Yeah, I might prefer to just stay on Earth and observe what's happening. Yeah, I watch think, Netflix, yeah? <laughs> I, I think yeah. people glorify space a little bit because it's like, you know, we watch uh, sci-fi, what? Star Wars, etc. What? What? But if you, what? What? you know, you'd be going like for like what? hundreds and hundreds of million miles and you'd see nothing. <laughs> you'd just see dead planets. <laughs> like there's nothing to look at. <laughs> so, yeah, you'd be pretty much stuck on a, in, a, in a little prison that is your spaceship for a long time before you see anything interesting. I mean, you might see interesting stuff, right? Maybe there might be life uh, where you might be like, oh okay there's another something else we found i was i was just about to ask because steve touched on it and he said oh there's just dead planets what's your thought on the possibility of there being aliens like first of all do you think aliens exist oh okay so that is a classical question that gets asked um so do i think aliens exist well from a scientific perspective if we for sure knew aliens did not exist we will not be searching for it um, but okay. this is not saying for sure they do exist. There are signs that aliens could possibly exist. So tardigrade, so it's a, a microorganism uh, that's on Earth. And oh, the the one that looks like a bear, like those yeah, little bugs. Yeah, yeah. Have you it, seen it looks them? like a water bear with like it's kind of plump. Yeah. Uh, so you know we took that so that uh, species or that uh, that microorganism can survive in like you know extreme heat and extreme winter. And there was an experiment done where it was put on the surface of a rocket. Uh, I think it was a M3 rocket. And it was launched into the orbit of the Earth for 10 days in space. And it came back. And what we found is 68% of these microorganisms survived the extreme coldness of space, the radiation of space. It didn't die. It didn't have any protection. It was just there and they survived. So on Earth, we can find species that can survive for a brief moment the harshness of space. So it is 
possible there's life out there. Um, but right now, Joel, I'm kind that, of inconsistent. Joel, that was a very political answer, my guy. I want you to tell me, yes or no, do aliens exist? And we're talking no, like not microbes. That. We're talking like... Yeah, let like, me press you for an answer here. Yes or no, do you think <laughs> aliens exist? Maybe. Ah, come <laughs> on. <laughs> <laughs> on the current evidence, I would like to say no, purely because we haven't found anything. Oh, Joe, you're breaking my heart, man. He's a proper scientist, you know. But, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Shady. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm not denying the fact that there might be a possibility. I think, I, I think we found some, like, um, organic material. I mean, not, not, not anything alive, but um, stuff that is organic. I think it's, like, a protein or just before a protein. Asteroid. I remember reading uh, a news article about that, which suggests, like, it's not entirely there, but it suggests that, oh, a protein can be made from these materials. Hence, going forward, you know, life can be uh, also be made. So it's like, there we, we have hints. I mean, it's like water on Mars, right? We haven't okay. been on Mars. Who knows? Um, maybe once we analyze the surface of Mars and the water there, we might find some microbes. But uh, for me, what's more, like, fascinating is if there does there exist, you know, full-blown aliens like us, um, you know, in another un- uh, well, a- a- another galaxy somewhere, obviously, uh, probably not in our solar system. That would be really interesting. And uh, maybe the question is, why haven't we heard anything yet? No. Maybe they just don't want to be our friends. <laughs> they're just like, you know, <laughs> screw these guys. They're so unevolved. Let's just not go anywhere near them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there are speculations on certain regions having a higher chance of finding aliens. Even looking at the solar orbiter, you know, helping us understand the solar wind can also help us to look for life forms in the universe. Because if you think about it, a star similar to the size of the sun, millions and millions of miles away, could have this wind flowing out of it. And if you look at a planet and you can find it, how this interact is similar to how it interacts on Earth, potentially there could be life similar to Earth, which is being protected by this magnetic field line. Mm. Um, there's, this, um, there's this quote that's always going around the internet. I just want to kind of clarify if it's true or not. I think you'd probably be the best person to ask. Where they say, like, for every grain of sand that there is on Earth, there's like a billion stars. Is that, that Would that be a correct assumption to make or... I think that would be a good assumption in the ballpark region, yes. It's so, given the so potentially could like any one of those stars have a, a you know, a, a solar system of, you know, planets revolving around it, which could potentially have life? Potentially, yes. Uh-huh. Okay, aliens exist. I've made my mind up. 100% <laughs> they exist. I mean, a billion stars per grain of sand. There must be another one out there. We can't be the only one. We've, we've, we've analysed quite a few places and... Uh, we scan quite 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 a lot of uh, well, obviously not entirely the universe, but we have quite a large sample, let's say, and we still haven't seen anything. So it's kind of one of those questions: like, why not? And it's maybe it's difficult. Maybe it's more difficult than we think for life to you know crop up. Maybe we haven't figured out exactly what is required, and we just we think it's something more. Simple. Maybe maybe we're the last planet left with life on it. Maybe we're the first. How about that? Yeah, <laughs> we're the exactly. most advanced one. Yeah. Exactly. Oh we're God! If we're the life. most advanced one, then bloody hell! <laughs> I, I can tell you guys this: if I do find inconclusive, well, sorry, conclusive evidence that there is life somewhere out there, I'll make sure I'll let you guys know where it is. The TNG exclusive. Area fifty-one, or would you Area fifty-one it? <laughs> what's your what's, what's your thoughts on Area fifty-one? 
okay. I think Area 51 is just a secure uh, base for them to do advanced um, uh, testing for aircraft, you know, advanced military secret aircraft being built. I don't oh, think Joel, they're not letting me pull him in. You're not letting me pull you into any conspiracy theories. You're not having it today, I'm telling you. <laughs> I mean, as a scientist, I can only base it on the facts and what we can observe. Um, but I guess it's also like what's not observed cannot be irrefutably denied also. Um, nice, nice. I like the answer. You left a little, you left a little crack in the door there for, for you know, conspiracy theorists to kind of sliver through. So, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's possible, right? We've we only explained, we only found space uh, and started exploring in like 50 years. So we're kind yeah. of still in the early age. Definitely. Maybe 100, 200 years from now when we have really explored space or 1,000 years when we have, have interplanetary, ever, interstellar travel or interplanetary mm. travel. We'll kind of get this answer. Are we alone or is there more out there? Mm. Are, you, are you a Star Wars fan, by the way? Just to just kind of ask that question. Yes, I do like my Star Wars. Yeah, because Dan's a big fan. So I know Dan's kind of feeling a little heartbroken right now, thinking that, you know, oh God, Star Wars might not ever happen. But uh, <laughs> I think, uh, I think uh, a lot of what people's perceptions of space comes from movies. And so... You know, when you say Star Wars, they say like Daisy Ridley's, um, no, sorry, not Daisy Ridley, what am I talking about? Ridley Scott's Alien. Mm -hmm. You know, when you say space, people think of that because that's what's in popular culture. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how, how do you think that kind of shapes our, our vision of space and like, you know, what, how, should, how should the space be shown in movies? Ooh, um, well, I guess for them to show aliens, because 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 uh, movies have this uh, you know realm of having fiction, um, so for them to show aliens uh, as a right to show fiction is correct, but I don't think we should rely on any kind of movies as a scientific evidence for sure there are green aliens walking about or terminators going about in space. We're not saying there isn't any you know, terminators, but we haven't found any. Oh, Joe. <laughs> I mean, to come to Aaron's point, uh, I'll give him hope. You know, there's a moon in our solar system called Mimas, which is a moon of Saturn. And that, okay. that one looks like a dead star. You know, it, it oh. has a classic circle. I, I'm not saying it's a dead star that's going to destroy us. It's got a shape. But you're not saying it's not, though. People, uh, it's definitely not dead star. Ah. Yeah, I'm 100% <laughs> uh, But it, it looks like the dead star, so... You know, space is a mysterious thing. Anything is possible, right? But I think also, like, I remember reading a book um, called uh, The Universe from Nothing. And mm -hmm. essentially what it did is it summarized uh, what we've discovered and from the beginning to the end and what we know about the universe. And mm -hmm. um, according to the book, we're living quite a special period of time where... So at the beginning, obviously, the universe was expanding. And um, the expansion was uh, actually... Uh, I believe it was accelerating at first, and uh, eventually, what happened is, is that the uh, the universe expansion slowed down, and we we, we can predict that it's, it's it's slowing down, it's decelerating, and we're in this perfect point in time where we can see that, but mm -hmm. all, well, at least predict it, but also know that to get to this point, the universe must have been expanding, um, uh, accelerating. So, uh, do you think like? 
I don't know. Is it, do you ever? Uh, for me, it brings in like some spiritual side of it, where you know we're quite lucky to be in this position to look at you know how the universe is formed, etc. And obviously, our like mental mental capability of you know asking these questions. Do you think like in science, there's um there's space for people to be, for example, like spiritual or religious, etc. Uh, usually, it's contested. But what is your opinion? I think. Yes, I mean, and you know, I know many scientists who are spiritual and religious, but I think what we shouldn't blur is bring spiritual reasoning as a hard science fact, um, because science is about science. I don't think claims everything to what it finds as ultimate truth, uh, but what it believes is what we observe. This is the best possible explanation, and in the future, this explanation might change. So scientists advancing the knowledge but not uh, taking it as a belief system and people shouldn't merge the line between what is belief and what's knowledge mm-hmm. when you try and uh, mix them both together that's when we have this contestant of like uh, of like extreme views on either end mm-hmm. i feel that personally you know i think i'm a religious person but i don't find my religion religious views affect the view i look at space and the exploratory side of things Mm, I agree. Uh, I, I believe there's space for both of them. It doesn't necessarily have to clash. And like you said, um, they kind of actually, they deal with different subjects in, in a way. Well, one with where it's more human psyche and um, exploring the human mind and the other is, like you said, it's more exactly what is going on and doesn't yeah. necessarily clash. Mm-hmm. But it's just uh, some people might think that they are the same or one yeah. a suitable belief system and that's when all these clashes become right. When people but, aren't fully sure what they both show. Yeah, I think this this like coldness of science is only recent as well. Where you, you know scientists are advocating that there should be no spirituality or no no kind of uh, religion mixing with it. Where historically, most of the um, uh, inventions and uh, most of the scientific progress was made by, for example, like priests. Uh, you know, a, a lot of, for example, like Christian monks and. Uh, that were just studying and li- literally just exploring on their side, you know, what is God doing, etc. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's quite a recent phenomenon where we try to make it like a cold subject, uh, kind of soulless subject. But I don't know. That's my personal opinion. Uh, do, do, does anyone else have a... Erin, what do you think of that? Well, to be fair, I, I am an atheist. So I think out of the four of us, I'm the only one that you know doesn't believe in a, a kind of a, a God of some sort. So I don't know if I'm the right person to kind of comment on that just because I, I generally in my life, I don't really have a lot of what is called spirituality. So um, for me, I do look at science as just science and I don't really involve that sort of aspect of it. Um, yeah. But that's just me in everyday, in everyday life. So um, yeah, I don't really know how, how accurate anything I say would be on that, on that particular, on that particular topic. But do you think it should be seen as like just a mechanism of how things work or do you, do you think we should also delve into like, well, um, the people postulate, oh, there, sh- there doesn't necessarily need to be a why is this happening? But do you think it's not healthy for us to, to ask these questions? I mean, I think if you're in science, you always have to ask questions, no matter how uncomfortable they may make you. Um, and as long as your your spirituality or your religious beliefs do not get in the way of you asking questions that need answers, I don't see any problem with having, you know, merged the two. but if, for example, a question gives you an answer that goes against your 
your beliefs and you're therefore not willing to ask that question that's when it becomes a problem i mean i think science is you know it's ever evolving as is the human race and you just need to keep pressing forward and as long as your your religious or spiritual beliefs aren't getting in the way of that i, I don't see a problem with with having them and evolving them within your work it's just i think i think that the end goal has to be to answer questions that haven't been answered so as long as it doesn't affect that i'm, I'm perfectly happy with it and i just want to add to that point to aaron where science is also evidence-based so as long as yeah. you can show conclusive evidence and a theory that supports it then science will ex accept it but if there's no evidence then you know we couldn't go on saying this is possible or that's possible because we could not put our finger down yeah that's the thing with science it's all evidence-based and i feel a lot of spirituality is how you feel about a topic whereas you don't necessarily need proof you say this is my belief i i believe this to be true but science is a bit more you know as steve said kind of cold in the moment as in you don't say things unless you can prove it and back it up with some sort of study or whatever but spirituality kind of comes from within which is a i don't know it's, it's just a completely different realm i guess um you can as i said mix and match it but it really just depends on depends on how it affects your work going forward i think but even in science you get that that sense of uh, you know uh, kind of emotional i mean you can see with like string theorists uh, you know they always well people who believe uh, well possibly that string theory is the driving factor and uh, people that don't in physics uh, a lot of it can be done down to you know they spent a lot of their lives working on this theory and they don't want to let go even though it might not be uh, you know the correct theory so I, I think this kind of yeah it is difficult in it because it, it I, I, I believe that these two kind of subjects kind of blur the lines into each other this is my own like personal opinion uh, even like models on what we think is today true you know yeah. tomorrow can be thrown out the window for example like the atom being a I forgot what it was like the black pudding or something <laughs> if you remember yeah. the pudding model uh, yeah. that was completely thrown out uh, for another model uh, plum, plum pudding plum, plum pudding, pudding that was it yeah I think uh, that's the nature of science right it's it's the nature of exploring and so I don't think science ever says what we find is 100% definite true uh, but it doesn't change for what we observe, right? So if, if whether we have plum model or the current uh, model about the proton in the center and electrons whizzing around, the, what we observed of this behavior still stays true, you know? Exactly, yeah. But how mm. we describe this has just evolved with our understanding. Um, but science attempts uh, to answer the world the best way we could. And without science, you know, we, uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we are able to do, right? Like if you, if if we didn't know F equals M A, I don't think we'd even explore space. Right? You know how do we we wouldn't think about okay how do we get into space? Okay, so, well we need a force that will contract. We need fuel. We need propellant. I don't think we would have figured any of that out. Because I think science is uh, it's trying to. Well, from what I feel is that humans are a very curious species, and science endeavors to satisfy this curiosity and help us understand our place in the universe. Yeah. Um, coming to spirituality, I mean, science doesn't prevent you from asking questions about spirituality or if people with spiritual beliefs have a question with science. Uh, but as long as, you know, because science is explore, exploratory, we can explore that, but it needs to be on a scientific framework uh, where we have to have reason and facts uh, rather than 
emotions, um, unless, you yeah. know, it can be proved otherwise. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, maybe... I think the point about like emotions is, is very important because as Steve said, like people might spend their life uh, on string theory and get emotionally attached to that theory because they've obviously spent their life on it. But that's like a, an almost a human flaw in that we attach emotion to everything. And so to say like, you know, you can't have any emotion in science kind of goes against human nature as well. So there is that argument to be made. So um, I, I do think it is quite a complex kind of question that you've postulated there to be honest with you. Yeah, it's a complex it's one, yeah. difficult to know where to draw the line, I guess. But, but just yeah, for I mean, our viewers, I don't have scientific background. So they understand that, you know, science is like Joel said, it's our curiosity and it's our, our way of, uh, we definitely observe these things and then we try to explain why we observe these things. And obviously the more we observe, the better our models become. So maybe, you know, one day we saw, you know, we observed one thing and our model was around that. And then another day we observe something, you know, that adds on to it, but then changes the model completely. And that's okay. That's science. Yeah. Like things that's change. Fine, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and also, I don't think science is cold um, purely because, I, 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 um, you know, some people have this view we are kind of like psychopaths with no emotions and we're like, this is hardcore science, you cannot move. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then I think that's also, we're also putting to the view where curiosity, the human curiosity is also very hard cold. There's no emotions to it. Um, because, because of our curious nature, we are able to question things, why it happened. Uh, and I believe science is more of a conversation that's opened and that kind of unites everyone to bring their views and uh, evidences. And we all just go through them and see okay, what can we postulate that's reasonable and that can be applied across. I wanted to ask about like how your field is changing, at least um, for me it's like I can see a lot of like science m merging with data science, like, it's quite a large field of more like techniques to look at how you know looking at data and how that represents things. Do you see like this evolution of traditional science where it was more test-based, um, obviously they have to analyze the data but it was more like you know like you said observations, um, for you, like, where do you see science going in the future? What, what will be the important fields? I think testing will never go because testing is an important part for us to test theories which we formulate. But yeah, observations are becoming more and more in space science uh, purely because, you know, we are talking about regions of space where we cannot extract it. We have to have a probe that makes a measurement and then we have to postulate what it is. And the combination with data science, uh, the reason for that, you know, we are making more and more measurements. So we have thousands and thousands, you know, megabytes and gigabytes of data. And then trying to filter through that to find what's really happening can be quite consuming. So having, having data science will help us narrow this down into subsets. And then we'll be able to really focus our science on what we are trying to address rather than filtering through billions and billions of data and spending years just filtering through them. Mm. Yeah, it's quite um, interesting. I mean, like you can see like in space science, things evolving, uh, people putting in money in it like we were talk we had an episode on uh, you know Elon Musk's uh, space program and Virgin Orbit space programs and how they they're being pushed uh, privatized etc do you think this there's do you think that's where science belongs kind of being pushed by also personal interests and not necessarily just curiosity or do you think that's that's not good for uh, science in general at the end of the day um, uh, when what when we do science you know at the end of the day we need you know we require money to do it, right? We need to have a economical justification as to why we do it. So we can't explore something in space just for the sake of it, purely because, you know, 
exploring somewhere costs you billions and billions of pounds. Uh, unless we have a specific mission to you know, help uh, like solar orbiter help us try and understand our sun so we can prepare for you know, solar radiation or how our sun works. I think it's a mix of both. So curiosity plays in a factor, but also asking us the hard question as to like, for our species to go above and beyond that, what are the things we have to investigate with science? And then from there, we feed uh, our curiosity into like, mm. okay, we're going to see this, but how do we measure this? Mm-hmm. maybe on a more personal note for yourself um you know looking into the future i mean this is i want to say the start but you've obviously been pursuing science for <laughs> a long time now and uh this phd is a great one that you're doing uh, working with esa european space agency i'm i'm thinking for you in the future where do you want to end up let's say in like three years time you know you finish your phd etc what do you want to be um Oh, okay, that is a tough question. Because, um, you know, you know, Steve, we both did our master's in aerospace engineering. Yeah. And obviously I have I have the curiosity, you know, to build stuff. So I have my engineering side. Uh, so in three years from now, I would like to somehow merge my science field, so my curious exploratory nature, but also with the engineering side of things. And I think space science mm. allows me to do that. So because... In space science, we have to explore, let's say, you know, let's say the region of the sun. We know we want to measure X, Y, and Z. But then here it comes also the engineering part. Okay, but this is now 500 degrees Celsius. How are you going to observe it? And what are the effects of this? And what you observe? So in the future, what I would see is after my PhD, I'll probably pursue a career where I have a combination of both into a research or industry, whichever allows me to do both. Hand in hand. That's really cool. Yeah, really admire that actually. Joel, can I ask you a question before Steve tries to stifle me? Um, <laughs> how many? Okay, a trillion lions or the sun? Who wins in a fight? A trillion lions. Uh, and the sun. Uh, I think hands down the sun. The radiation. What if the lions went at night? I mean, if the lions went at night, then they won't be going towards the sun, right? They're just in the deep cold. Mm-hmm. Okay, how oh, many lines would played. it take to be up the sun? Pardon? How many lines would it take? Ooh. Well, I <laughs> think I'm 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 doing doing <laughs> nice, but you like. Now this is why Joel, you can tell, is a scientist. He doesn't just take it as a joke. He's like, nah, let me actually think about how many lines it would take. <laughs> That's, funny, That's so think. true. Now I just want to see what your reaction would be. Science, right? you, can, you can ask questions like this. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, it's, it's like an ongoing question on like Twitter. It's like become a meme, right? Where they're like, nah, a trillion lions could beat the, beat the sun. I just wonder what a scientist would think when he, when he heard that sort of thing. Mm, yeah, I don't think any <laughs> amount of life, uh, like, uh, you can put billions of lions uh, or trillions uh, or tens of trillions. But they're going to take on the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Given that sunset electromagnetic radiation coming towards you, I think the sun, the lions will have a bigger challenge to approach the sun before being burned mm. up or cooked. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> before they even get there. Yeah. I mean, even if they get there, don't you think it's a losing battle because the sun will just burn them up if they touch it? But what if they wear mittens? All right, let me move this mittens. on. You know what? You know what? Let me move this on. So I wanted to ask Joel, like, in your uh, PhD so far, I mean, obviously you've, you've only just started it and you've only made like minimal 
progress but is there anything like interesting that you've like what kind of investigation have you done and is there anything interesting that's come out or is that still um i'm not allowed to know yet <laughs> no there are a few interesting so i'm still you know uh at the starting phase of my phd so i'm reading a lot and i'm also starting to play with the data uh and what we're seeing is we well, so my kind of research is looking at this wind right which is ever present and why um, um, my research is looking at, well, where does this wind come from? And why do we have this wind? Where does, you know, and how does this wind flow? You know, is the sun pushing it out? And the wind gains in speed. It's unlike any other wind on earth, right? If you move away from a source, you get slower and slower. But this wind, when it gets to earth, is 450. But if you get to Jupiter, we're talking about a, almost a million kilometers a second. So, you know, this is getting faster and faster. And why is it getting faster? Um, so I'm still looking at the data. Uh, I haven't got any kind of conclusive science, but there has been some findings on like these switchback events. So if you think about it, you know, from the sun, you have the magnetic field line and you would think the field line is a straight line that's going out and then reconnects back to the sun. If you think about it now, there's a kink in the magnetic field line. So it gets like whipped backwards and this kink goes through this magnetic field line and oh, wow. there's more things happening. And I think people are still trying to find out why is there kinks in the magnetic field line. Mm. Um, and, you know, this flow of outflow uh, yeah. of the solar wind, and the solar wind, you know, drags this magnetic field line with it. Mm. Why does it do that? And in space, we're also exploring space plasma, right? Which is unlike solid liquids and gases. It's a fourth yeah. state of matter. And we believe that 99.9 percent of the entire visible universe a visible observable universe let me be correct <laughs> is made up of plasma and only less than 0.1 some would say less than one percent is made up of solid liquids and gases oh, that's insane. So we, we, we are dealing with a new state of matter and you know trying to understand it more <laughs> that's quite interesting because I, I mean we did an episode last episode was about Marcus Aurelius and how the Romans viewed you know states of matter as you know earth water fire and now we're only starting to find you know a new state of matter plasma and you can you can imagine in like a thousand years time they'll look back at us and be like look at these fools they fought <laughs> you know <laughs> look at this, these idiots this element table this is what they thought that's all that existed but there's like <laughs> I mean, it just shows there's always more to, you know, to find out. And we barely have scratched the surface. And we just about yeah. moved, you know, from ancient times to this modern era. We're probably yeah. going to move much, much more further in the long distant future. Yeah. And I think we're also in the exciting side of science now. Because uh, we're kind of coming into an era where now we have to go above and beyond and explore our other planets. And, you know, when you, when you find a new state of matter, you know, the fourth state of matter, sorry called plasma the amount of technological possibilities the new state of matters it has amazing properties you know it carries electromagnetic fields but on a global scale it has no uh, electric field because it's quasi neutral um mm -mm. so i think it's exciting to explore this and it's a golden age of space is, plas is plasma something that we can find on Earth? If we dig, like, I don't know, you dig in your garden, will you find plasma? Or like, exactly what is plasma? Maybe you can, like, give us a brief uh, description. So plasma is, I mean, okay, so I, I said, you know, 99% of observable, a visible, observable universe is made up of plasma. But on Earth, it's very rare. Uh, we kind of see the natural plasma occurring in lightning. 
So that's plasma. Um, we also have it in artificial things such as uh, fluorescent light, uh, which is also plasma. Um, right. not, not as free plasma like in space, but it, it's got plasma properties. And what plasma is, it's a, okay, I, I don't want to get in, like, into too scientific terms. Yeah. But, you know, people will be like, oh, what does he mean by this term and that term? If you think about it, in, in a simple way, you have solids. And if you apply energy to it, it will eventually turn into liquid. Mm -hmm. And if you apply more energy, it will go into gas. Yes. Then once you're in gas, and if you apply even more energy, then you have the state called the plasma state. Right. And in the plasma state, you have electrons and ions that are moving okay. about. Yes. Uh, and the number of electrons and ions are same. So on a large scale, if you measure it, it's got electromagnetic fields. Mm -hmm. But you don't measure any current. But if you look at a smaller scale, like probe it inside the plasma, you'll measure voltage. Oh, wow. So it's, it's like it has a dual, a dual property, kind of like a wave particle-esque uh, property where, you know, waves are, can be also modeled as a kind of particle. Um, so plasma on a large scale behaves one way, one way, but if you look at it at a small scale, it behaves totally different. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, with solar physics, we are trying to make this link, right? How do we link this, what we see in large scale and small scale together? Mm. And try oh, wow. and describe this medium. Oh, that's really, really cool. And it's, I guess it's just only kicked off and there's a lot we don't understand about plasma yet. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think by us going closer to the sun, where we get to see this plasma in its pristine form before interacting with any planets, because we're going well within Mercury's orbit, we get to really see, okay, how is this plasma in its kind of its natural habitat where it's pristine? And I think this is where we usher in the golden age of solar physics. Oh, wow. That's maybe new energy uh, forms, etc. Who knows? Yeah. And maybe, I mean, if going into the future, we're talking about fusion, you know, we are having an energy crisis very soon where we will be like, well, can we really have coal-powered mines because of global warming? And when yeah. we move towards electric future, we will eventually reach a limit where electric uh, people will have and more issues with it also. Then we will have to then venture into fusion and other forms. Mm -hmm. And I think understanding about space and space plasma will help us get to this. What do you, what, what do you think of the energy future? I mean, like, what's your opinion on fission? Like, so, so just for the viewers, fission is when uh, you kind of bombard um, these, uh, like, uh, plutonium or whatever. It's enriched uh, uh, sources with, uh, I believe it's a neutron, is it? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, essentially, once it hits it, let's say pieces of that will break off will give more energy out, but also those pieces will hit other pieces, causing a chain reaction. So you have a massive amount of energy being released. Uh, the issue with that, obviously, is if, it, if the chain reaction happens and something goes wrong, you can't stop it. Uh, it's just going to keep uh, you know, bombarding each other, hence the, uh, what, what is called a meltdown. That happened in Chernobyl. Yeah, it happened exactly, exactly what happened in Chernobyl. They, there's, there's nothing they, they could have stopped it. Uh, same what happened in Japan as well. Uh, this is the issue with fission. However, the trade is that obviously it gives quite a large amount of energy and it's cleaner in some way than uh, burning, you know, uh, natural gas, etc. Uh, Joel was talking about fusion, which is a safer form. Uh, essentially, instead of breaking particles, you try to put them together, I believe. But the conditions for that to happen are very specific. So as soon as the conditions stop, for example, if there's something that went wrong, the reaction just completely stops and everyone's fine and nothing happens, which is obviously the future. But I want to ask Joel a question like, 
where do you think the balance between energy and safety should lie? Do you think fission should be you know, still pursued because we haven't reached fusion yet? Or what's your opinion on energy? So I think the question comes, we, as, as, a, as a race, we have to meet our energy needs, right? So we haven't quite cracked fusion yet. So I think we should look into fu- uh, fission, but at the same time, you know, try and make it uh, as safe as possible. But, you know, there will be some amount of risk involved with it. But we, as long as we take all the precautionary measure and make it also energy efficient, so we know we're not being harsh to the planet as much as possible. Uh, but once we reached fusion, I think then we can transition into it. Again, uh, the issue here also will be like, even if we have fusion, the cost associated with it, we also have to make it economically viable. So even if you had fusion, if it's really expensive, there won't be any point, right? I don't think anyone's going to pay if this is going to be hypothetical values, like a thousand pounds for switching on the light for a, a minute. Okay, these numbers don't work, but yeah. I'm just saying like, if it's too expensive, people won't be opting for it. But do you think it's up to like government and policymakers to kind of promote uh, fusion? For example, they can, uh, I guess, make it cheaper by, uh, you know, removing tax on uh, producers or um, put, putting on tax, heavy tax on other based, uh, for example, like burning uh, fossil fuels. Maybe if they put too heavy of a tax, you're kind of forced to go with fusion anyway. Do you think that, there's a responsibility on the government? So if, if we ever reach to a stage where we have a fusion that, is economically viable, so in the sense that it can be employed in a large scale. Uh, I, I do think policymakers will take an initiative to make it an energy source that people should use, with, as you mentioned, like taxes on it. But not only that, uh, depending on uh, how climate change evolves, it might take us even more drastic measures where, you know, you can might say we want to by X amount of years, we want to be 100% fusion. Yep. which will drive more people to eventually say, okay, we should probably shut coal plants down, mm. um, even nuclear plants down to have fusion, to facilitate fusion. But mm. that's way in the future until we can obtain a model. And also that also shows the evolutionary trait, right? As, as we evolve as a species, we have to learn to live our old ways and embrace new methods and yep. hope for a better future. Otherwise we will still be in Stone Age, you know, having fire. And yeah, that's exactly. all so yes. as long as people are open about it and we can make it viable enough um so it's safe uh then i think fusion is could be a future mm, that's that's a good uh good take on it actually i wanted to ask you a question joel um maybe a bit, bit on a personal side as a you know a space physicist i can call you i think and a space scientist in your spare time what do you like to do to like relax and calm down we ask uh, a lot of our guests on here what do they like to do in their spare time so that is a good question. Um, so for me, I would like to go on long walks, you know, get out some fresh air, you know, try read books or go out movies or play some sports. Okay, I can't play sports in the current climate or the current condition. Uh, I also try to work out, um, you know, take my mind off from science and have something new. Some things I do is like, you know, have thought experiments, but nothing related to science, but like, as Aaron was saying, I think it was Aaron who was saying, like, how much lion do you need to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, these questions may seem, you know, oh, is that even possible? But, you know, trying to take your mind off and doing something fun with it will help, it, will help or at least help me to then come back to science and focus on the real hard stuff. 
Mm. So you're always in kind of inquisiting, even though it might be stupid things like you know who would win a zombie or a or a bear, but but <laughs> you're always posing inquisitive uh, questions to yourself, and I think yeah. it's in- indicative to like who you are as a person as well. That was bloody brilliant. Uh, thank you for listening to us, guys, and we're gonna wrap it up right there. Uh, if you have any questions you want to ask us or you want us to ask Joel, uh, please feel free to contact us on our Instagram at Verbal Reasoning Podcast, our Twitter account, uh, Podcast Verbal, or just search us on Facebook and you will find our page, the Verbal Reasoning Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for continuing to support us. And thank you to Joel for joining us today. Uh, you've been a fantastic guest. We'll thank be happy you. to have you on whenever you want to come on. Thank you so much. And uh, I think we can wrap it up there. Thanks again. Uh, Steve, why didn't you say who said having fun and being serious can't go hand in hand? That was bloody brilliant.